difference and to see and to enjoy the sweet unity that we have in the gospel and the things of God and very appreciative to Brother Mark as he uh, uh, is the coordinator of RBNet and good to see that he works himself out of a job. He's just kind of there and everybody else has taken over and running different things and that's kind of the goal I think so that's a wonderful time. So it's a great to have fellowship with you in the gospel just down the road at Grace Emmanuel and so I appreciate the invitation to come preach to you this morning. Turning your Bibles to Acts 15. Acts 15, I'm currently <clears throat> leading our church through Acts 16 on our way to do a series of messages in the book of Philippians. And as you know, some of you may know, Acts 16 provides the background of how that church came into being. And I actually started with the last incident recorded for us in Acts 15. A situation that the Lord overruled and used in his kind providence that ultimately was woven into the fabric of how that church at Philippi was founded. And so I want us to think about it here this morning. Acts 15, 36 to 41. I've entitled the message this morning, A Division Between Good Men. A Division Between Good Men. Verse 36 to 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you did not leave out these types of incidents uh, in the history of your church, but that you've recorded them for our good and our admonition and instruction. And we pray, Holy Spirit, the one who inspired this text, that you would put light upon it and give us understanding and give us hearts, Lord, that run after the truth and wills that are moldable by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, among many of the many blessings and realities that will make up the eternal state of heaven, certainly one of the best and one of the greatest will be a continual, uninterrupted unity we will enjoy as believers. All Christians then and there will be joined in heart, mind, belief, and practice without division. Won't that be sweet? We get a taste of that here and now. The reality is that we do enjoy a great measure of unity by the Spirit of God, but sadly, due to sin, lack of understanding, not being on the same page and being at different places in our spiritual growth and other factors, disagreements and divisions happen in the body of Christ. That has been true throughout church history. It is true now. And Scripture bears witness to the fact that it happened in the early days of Christ's church. And we have a record of such an incident here in Acts 15. Here in the Acts, at the end of Acts 15, we have a record of a division between good men, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had been sent out together from the church at Antioch as a missionary team. They had preached the gospel together. They had witnessed together the Lord save sinners, planted churches together. They had strengthened new converts together. 
They had ministered together at Antioch before they were sent out, teaching the disciples the scripture and the gospel in that church. They knew each other well. They loved one another. They complemented one another. We could call them the dynamic duo. But here they are now having a disagreement and a very serious consequential disagreement. And I'm glad that the Holy Spirit did not keep this from us, that he didn't veil this as a dark blot and said, well, that's going to hurt the testimony of Christ's church. The Spirit doesn't do that. I'm glad it's recorded for us because it confronts us with the fact that disagreement among believers does happen and it can result and does result at times in division in the church. Now, don't understand me. I'm not suggesting that this is our standard. I'm not saying you say, well, you see, disagreements and divisions happen. Don't lose sleep over it. It'll all come out in the wash. A thousand times no, that's not what I'm suggesting. But the record of this disagreement and division is instructive for us. First of all, it tells us that it does happen, and we should not be thrown for a loop as though Christ is not on his throne because it happens. And it also provides us with some important lessons for when it does happen. And as we try to understand this disagreement and division between Paul and Barnabas, consider first of all the focus of the disagreement. It's pretty straightforward. I won't read back through the text. Paul suggests to Barnabas, hey bro, listen, let's go back to where we have ministered and check on the saints. Let's look at the gardens we've planted, see if they're coming to fruition. Maybe we need to do some more work, cultivating, encouragement, etc. Barnabas wants to take Mark, John Mark, with him on the trip. Paul has a different opinion and says it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea that the young man who left us previously should go with us to the work. He didn't go with us to these places. He should not go back with us. Now, the reason for this is back in Acts chapter 13. If you'll turn back there for a moment. Paul and Barnabas had been sent out on a mission from Antioch. Mark is with them. And we're told this about John Mark in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, notice Mark doesn't return to Antioch. He returns to Jerusalem, which indicates to me that he went home home. He returns to Jerusalem. And Paul says, look, Barnabas, this young man, and this is how I interpret it, he left us not even mid-mission. We hadn't even started good. And he left us to go back home. He did not go with us to these works. He should not go back with us to these works. Barnabas disagreed, convinced that they ought to take John Mark along with them, which most, I believe, have interpreted as, we need to give the young man a second chance. Maybe he blew it and left us, but I think that perhaps we should be gracious and kind, give him a second chance, let's take him with us, and Paul would not budge. And Barnabas would not budge. Paul kept insisting, no, we don't take him. And Paul and Barnabas stood his ground, determined, yes, we need to take them. And so there was, if you will, a a budding of heads. Which brings us to consider the frustration of the disagreement. We've considered the focus of the disagreement. Let's consider the frustration of the disagreement. 
In verse 39, we read that there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. The word translated sharp means that it was a provocative disagreement. The word can, can literally mean jabs. Not as though they're actually taking blows at one another. But it can be like poking someone in the side, if you will, but not, not, not literally. It, can, it is used in, in the New Testament to speak of stirring someone up positively, like provoking one another unto love and to good works, such as in Hebrews chapter 10. But it can be also be used in a bad way. Uh, it's irritating. It provokes to anger. Now, we're not told if these two brothers actually sinned against one another in their words and attitudes. That might be to read into the text. But I wouldn't be surprised if this language indicates that maybe uh, one got red-faced. Maybe they got into a conversation and Barnabas said, Paul, you need to learn, learn to be more gracious and you're just kind of hard-nosed. And Barnabas, and then you say, well, Barnabas, you've always been a snowflake and you've always given over to, you know, I mean, who knows what could have happened. In their conversation. But we're not told all of that information. What we're told is that this was an intense disagreement. And I'm sure that it grieved the hearts of these two men who loved each other and who had served so faithfully together in the gospel ministry. And they were unable to work this matter out regarding Mark. They were not able to reach an acceptable compromise. Both stood their ground. Which brings us to consider in the third place the fruit of the disagreement. We consider its focus, the frustration, and now the fruit. Unable to work this out in a manner that would satisfy both Paul and Barnabas, they part ways. And you see that in verses 39 to 41. I won't reread it. Barnabas stayed true to his belief that Mark should go with him, but seeing that was not going to happen, he took his, the brother with him to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. Paul takes Silas and heads out on a mission in another direction. Now, are you thinking, man, could they not have worked this out? If you read that passage that way, that's the right way to read the passage. It's not wrong. If you are in any way sensitive to unity and love, you don't read this and go, well, things happen. You say, could there not perhaps have been a way? We don't know. But that might be a natural response. That's an indication that you have a love for the brothers in your heart. You're sensitive to unity in Christ's church. And that is a precious commodity that we have to work hard to maintain. But it happened. And the question inquiring minds would want to know is, who was right and who was wrong in the situation? Right? Who was right? Was Barnabas in the right? And was Paul being hard-headed and hard-nosed? Or was Paul in the right and was Barnabas being snowflakey? All right? Well, let me say this. There's no indication that either Paul or Barnabas were sinful in the positions they held regarding Mark. Now, I'm not meaning that both of them were right. I'm simply saying that we don't have any clear revelation that either one of them was directly violating Bible truth, command, and principle. It's not clear that one man was walking contrary to the word of God and the other was right in the middle in the bullseye of God's will. And we have to recognize, brethren, that sometimes when we have divisions, that is, that is part of the case, isn't it? There may be times where both are 
And you might have people who are both standing on different biblical principles. And yet somehow they're not able to come to the meeting of the minds. And sin is often involved in that, in blindness of perspective. But that doesn't mean that one of those men was, that, that one of those men were, was clearly rebelling against the truth of God's word. However, I do believe that there are some reasons to believe that Paul was the one who was most clearly acting in accordance with wisdom and principle. Now, that's not to say Barnabas was not considering principles of righteousness and principles of grace. I'm sure he was. But it, it, there is some indication that Paul was the one who had wisdom and principle mostly on his side. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, consider that Mark's departure on the mission was a serious matter. Had Mark merely left to go home because of some family emergency or sickness or some other stewardship, I am certain Paul, a man of principle, would have had no problem with that. So when we're told back in chapter 13 that Mark had left them to go home, we're to a right to interpret this, as, does, as do others, that he was splitting from the work. He was splitting from the work. In other words... Evidently, Mark could not handle the demands at that time and the difficulties of missionary life. And once you read the rest of Acts 13 and 14, I think you understand why Paul judged it not a good idea for Mark to leave. If Mark left so early in the mission, what would he have been like later in the mission when the heat was really on the apostle and his companion? If Mark folded under a little bit of pressure, how would he have responded under a lot of pressure? I think Paul doesn't think Mark is able at this point in his judgment to handle the potential threats and so on that would be coming his way. He's not questioning Mark's salvation. He's not even necessarily questioning his Christian character. I'm sure he's a good man. He's just convinced that at this time he doesn't have the stuff for missionary life. So it was a, it was a serious matter. But also I believe there's another indication that Wisdom and principle was mainly on Paul's side, and that is the contrast in the text. Immediately following our text, we read this in Acts 16, 1 to 3. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, for his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. In contrast to Mark, who had proven to be unfaithful, Paul finds this faithful young man who, as an adult man, submits to circumcision. And listen to what Paul writes later to the Philippian church about the character and the commitment of this young man. Philippians 2, 19 to 20. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. So that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of this, his proven worth. That he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. I believe Timothy's faithfulness stands in contrast to that of Mark at this point. And then another thing that other people point out 
is the commendation of the church in the text. In verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Some take that to be the church basically, if you will, taking Paul's side. And that, 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 that they were being commended as a team and not the other. Now you could wrestle through that and decide if you think that's the case or not. But that might be an additional reason. Now again, it's not to say that Barnabas sinned by going off and taking Mark with him. He wasn't censured. He wasn't under discipline. So there was no sin. However, we do discover something in Scripture which possibly provides us with a clue as to a major influence on Barnabas' position concerning Mark. Turn with me to Colossians 4 for just a moment. Colossians chapter 4. We'll come back to this in a few minutes, but just notice what he says, what the text says here. Paul writing says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, 410, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas, cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. Uh Uh-oh. Cousin Mark. That's the third thing that may indicate that Paul was the one mainly in the right, the family connection. Could it be that Barnabas was under the influence of blood? Family blood. Not only feeling a sense of loyalty to a saved family member, but to just the fact that he was blood. Could it be that Barnabas knew that if he didn't take Mark with him, Thanksgiving with the family was going to be rough? He knew that if he didn't stand up for Mark, he was going to get the grandma special. Now you know Mark. He's the next Billy Graham. You better take him with you. We must be honest, when it comes to the church and the fulfillment of its mission, the deep emotional attachment and loyalty to family can cloud Bible truth and wisdom. Deep friendships even can cloud us and cause us to be biased. And we can find ourselves in situations where we're torn between what we know we should do down deep in our hearts And what will appear to our family as though we're being unloving and unloyal. And we get torn between the two. And it very well may be the case. I'm not saying it is. But this connection could be a possible clue that there was more going on in Barnabas than just Bible principle. Now, what do we learn from this? That's the the focus of the disagreement. Whether we take Mark or not. The frustration. They couldn't come to terms so they separate And then the fruit, they separate. What do we learn from this? First of all, it happens. It happens. It doesn't have to happen, but it does. Again, the incident recorded in this text is not our standard, but it's here for a reason, isn't it? It teaches us that there are times when Christians, including ministers of the gospel, have perspectives, beliefs, and convictions concerning practice that are completely opposed to one another. You've been a Christian long enough to know, you know that's the case. If you've been reared in church, you've seen it played out more than once. And these things can be so firmly held that working together closely is not a practical possibility. And when it becomes apparent that there's no way to resolve it, sometimes a separation might be practically necessary. 
as painful as it may be, or at least it's practically unavoidable in some sense. We are not told in this text how either Paul or Barnabas actually responded to one another as they separated. Other than that the disagreement was sharp and intense, it says they went their separate ways. But thankfully, this is one of those cases where the Spirit of God has been so kind as to drop us hints in the New Testament as to what happened after this. And it is from these hints of what happened afterwards that we can learn some lessons about how we can and should respond to these types of disagreements and divisions. First of all, we should be gracious and commend one another as much as possible. We should be gracious and commend one another as much as is possible. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, before I read that text, <clears throat> let me just say we have a tendency, all of us, I think, in situations like this to make ourselves look better than the other person on the other side of the issue. What do you think? The camera's not on you, so if you raise your hand or say amen, nobody's gonna, I don't think nobody's going to see you. Oh, he, uh, she admitted it. But I'll raise my hand. I'll admit it, okay? I don't, look, I don't like to look bad. Am I the only one? Have you gotten to the place in your process of sanctification where you like to look bad or you don't care? Because we don't want people to think that the division could in any way be owing to a deficiency in us. Now, it may indeed be true in any given situation that there's a separation in which you don't bear any real responsibility. It's not always true that it takes two to tango. It can happen where someone bears no responsibility. They can say, as far as I know, my hands are clean and my heart is pure. But even when that's true, there's something in us that wants to make sure that other people know we're right and the others are wrong. And what better way to do that than to defame the other person and decrease their estimation in other people's eyes. And this does not always require a frontal attack. Because we're Christians, we're sensitive to frontal attacks. We're supposed to be nice and sweet and kind and we're not supposed to attack. So we've come up with other ways that are Maybe harder to pin someone on. We can take shots at a person's character, causing others to lose confidence in more subtle ways. Well, I'm not going to say that Barnabas, I'm not saying Barnabas is a bad guy. I'm not saying he's not saved. and It's just that, oh, well, never mind, never mind. I don't want to speak bad about him. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want you to think poorly of them. It's just, I've just got some real concerns. And, and what do we just do? We just dropped a crumb, didn't we? We just let that morsel go down into the soul that begins to shape our views. 
And no one does this on social media. You know, sometimes on social media, you're like, why don't you just pick up the phone and give the person a phone call? Or we can package it in such a way that sounds so spiritual. And there's another clever way to do it is by asking leading questions. You know what a leading question is? Or a leading question. When you, you ask a question, like a, a series of questions, a question is dropping a crumb trail so that you actually get a person to the conclusion you want them to get to. So what do you think of Paul? Can you imagine Barnabas? And I'm not saying he did this. I don't think he did. But let's just kind of go with me for a moment. Use your sanctified imagination. So, so what do you think of Paul and his ministry? Well, I, I think it's okay. I like Paul. I mean, he, he can shuck the corn down to the cob when he preaches. I mean, it's just it's good stuff. But why do you ask? Well, I, do you ever think Paul, you know, he's driven. He's always driven and going here and he's going there and he walks 60 miles after he gets stoned and comes back to another city. Don't you ever feel like that really it's more about Paul rather than Jesus? I'm not saying that's true, and, but you know that whole thing that went down with Mark, John Mark, I saw a side of Paul I've never seen before. Did you detect a little narcissism? I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not saying it. I'm just want to make sure that I'm not on an island by myself. You see, all that often does, and I'm not saying you can't ever have conversations and get perspectives. That's not what I'm saying. But you see, that's all subtly leading people to a conclusion. I'll never forget years ago, and I'm not saying this, this holds true in every case, but I'll never forget years ago. It was right before Lisa and I were engaged. We were dating, and we were sitting at a pastor's table in his home at his table with his wife, and there were some visitors from out of town, and one of the visitors started talking about her husband's colleague. Not scandalous sin, but in a negative way. And the pastor's wife piped up. I mean, it was shocking. She says, I don't feel comfortable with this. That person's not here to defend himself. I mean, <laughs> that pretty much did away with the conversation. See, what happens is we want our view to prevail so that we come out smelling like a rose, the only way to do it is to strategically tear down the other per person. And I believe there's witness in the New Testament that this is not what happened with Paul and Barnabas. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Paul is developing an argument that is right for those who preach the gospel to be paid for their services. And as he does, he mentions Barnabas in a positive light. This was after the split. Paul is acknowledging Barnabas as a true man of God. He's putting him in a positive light. Now, some have suggested this is evidence that they made up. I think that's assuming that they were torn apart. Acts 15 does not say they left splitting and spitting. That's not what it says. That's an unnecessary assumption. This text could be bearing witness to the fact that Paul spoke favorably of Barnabas from the very beginning of their split. 
And I would suggest what we know of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I would just suggest, though we don't have evidence, I, I lean toward believing he was committed to the same kind of speaking of Paul. This makes me imagine a conversation that Paul has with someone who knows about the split. Hey, Paul, come here. Step in my office. Which is usually the back pew of a conference, right? Come here, step in my office. I heard, you know, you and Barnabas are not working together. Is that right? I mean, that's right. Well, you know, I've always had some concerns about Barnabas. And Paul says, stop right there. You're not going to talk about my Barney. No, no, no. We had a major difference. It's no secret. I be- do I believe he's wrong? Yes. Does he have his right to be wrong? Yes. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. Sure, I'm not going to hide that fact, but my Barney is a good man. He's a true man of God. And there may have been something else that restrained for Paul from taking subtle pot shots trying to get everyone on the Barney is bad train. And I would suggest it's this. He never got over what Barnabas had done for him. Remember what happened? Back in Acts chapter 9, verse 26 to 28. Talking about Paul, the text says, When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing they was disciples. I kind of read into that, that, that they were thinking, Listen, we don't know if this guy's genuine. This could be the Trojan horse. The guy, you know, he realizes the attacking is not going to really help as much. So he's going to fake being a Christian. He's going to get inside the church and tear it up from the inside. And I I have to say, I mean, I I could understand them wrestling with that. I'm not going to throw stones at them. Verse 27, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Can't you hear Paul in that back pew conversation? I'll always love Barney for no other reason, for how he reached out to me in my early days as a Christian. He believed in me when no one else did. And you can hear Paul say, now you realize Barnabas is a nickname, his real name is Joseph. He was nicknamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. I've never known a man with a bigger heart. And though I disagree with his position on Mark, I believe that he did what he thought was right before God. And I trust that it was coming out of a good heart. Maybe mixed up with remaining sin and blindness, yes, but who of us is not guilty of that? You know what's so sad? When there are spits and splits... We have this tendency to magnify people's faults and shortcomings while downplaying and forgetting all the good they've done to us in the past. And so they have their list. Here's my complaints. Now, they might give an honorable mention. Yeah, I remember that one time. And you're thinking, what about when I, and they don't even mention that. But why do, why do we do that? Why do we want to magnify faults and downplay sometimes decades of faithfulness? Because that destroys, listen, because we've got to build the narrative. We've got to win. 
And I would assume Barnabas was committed to the same for Paul. I could hear Barnabas, somebody wanting to talk bad about Paul, and he stops and dead in his tracks and said, listen, I ministered with the man. I saw him stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead, get up and walk 60 to 90 miles or so to the next city, preach, come back to the place where he was stoned, do it all over again. Now, what kind of self-centered man does that kind of nonsense unless he loves Jesus and the people of God? I may have a fundamental disagree with him about Mark, but here's much I know about Paul. The position he took was based on what he thought was right. I love that man. Does that mean we never recognize sin? No. Go read Galatians 2 where Paul calls Barnabas out by name for his hypocrisy. Not at all. So how should we respond when there's divisions, disagreement? We should be gracious and commend one another as much as is possible. But furthermore, we should trust the Lord to use it to sanctify us and build his church. We should trust the Lord to use it to sanctify us and build the church. Go back to that text in Colossians 4 for just a moment. It's one of the most blessed things, one of those holy hints that the Bible, the Spirit drops in the Scripture. Verse 10 and 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Paul, who had earlier said, Mark is not ready, says now, that guy's an encouragement. He's a fellow worker. He commends him publicly. That indicates that he saw progress in this young man's life. Or what about 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9 through 11? Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans have gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. See the contrast? A man who once said he's not ready. He's useful. Bring him to me. Or what about 1 Peter chapter 5? And verse 13, we get another one of these holy hints from Scripture. Peter writing, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. What's the second book in the New Testament? The book of Silas, the gospel of Silas, the gospel of Timothy, the gospel of Mark. Most believe and it's understood that this was written by this Mark under the guidance of Peter in Rome. Mark, as a true man of God, has that witness and testimony all the way till Jesus returns. The Lord did a mighty work in this young man, making him fit for ministry. How do you think that happened? Putting two and two together, I would say that the Lord used his time with Barnabas as a time of maturation. When they separated, Barnabas took him under his wing. And it was under his wing that he developed to become the man of God that he was. And who knows? It may be that in the Lord's wisdom, the Lord knew that Mark would not have flourished 
had he gone on that mission with Paul and Barnabas together. And the Lord used that separation as a time for Mark to mature to such an extent that Paul later said, Wow, is this the same guy? Now, I'm not saying the following happened. But I think it's okay to use our imaginations as long as we don't canonize them. Can't you imagine a few years later, several years later, Paul and Barnabas go to Camel Bucks for coffee? They sit down and Paul says, Barnabas, I've had time to reflect after all these years about what happened. When we, you know, remember when we went. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying I sinned. If I did, I'm not yet aware of that. And by the way, that's biblical. That doesn't mean always someone's hedging. Sometimes we're in cases we look back and you've been there, I'm sure. We say, I don't know. If I did, forgive me. I'm not trying to hedge. I don't know that I did. Maybe I did. But this much I know, it is absolutely amazing how God used you in Mark's life. And maybe Paul could have said something like, you know, maybe, just maybe. It might be that I should have given him a second chance. Maybe I I took it too far. And Barnabas says, Paul, thank you for saying that. You don't know what that means to me that you acknowledge that. But as I've reflected, I realize now why you took the position you did. When I took Mark under my wings, I began to realize that his fear had roots that went all the way back to his childhood. And had he gone on that mission with us, we would not have had the time and the context to be able to faithfully deal with his soul. And I can now see how the Lord wove that together and how it was best that he not go. And both of them are sitting there with tears streaming down their face, amazed at the wisdom, the grace, and the power of Jesus who builds his church and overrules our folly. But now here's the thing. If they did have indeed have such a conversation, it's because they didn't burn bridges. For a division and a disagreement to develop into an ultimate blessing, you can't set bridges on fire. Now, can bridges be rebuilt? Yes, but it takes a lot longer time to build a bridge than the cross one that you left there. And often when there are divisions, people do and say things that burn the bridges so badly that it's very difficult things for things to ever be mended. Not saying it's impossible, but it takes much longer, takes more grace. You have to work through all the mud that's been slung and the damage that's been done. But when you can say, listen, we don't see eye to eye. Yes, you see this, I see this. May the Lord judge between us. Maybe I'm blind. If he does, let him show me. But I love you. You lo- I love you. Lord be with you. Lord be with you. And many years later, you can look back and say, we didn't know what the Lord was up to. But look at what he's done through it. That's the grace of God. You know what this tells me? That when we get to glory, none of us is going to take credit for Christ's completely built church. We're going to look back amazed that our remaining sin didn't just tear the whole thing down. 
but he overrules in his grace and his mercy. And these many lessons, I commend them to you, to take these to heart. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency. We thank you for this story in the Bible that's true and real. Lord, we pray that you would help us to handle divisions and disagreement biblically. And Lord, when sin needs to be dealt with, we'll be faithful. And Lord, when it's a matter of different perspectives or things are not clear, you would help us to be extra gracious and kind. We pray, Lord, you'd give us the ability to believe the best about one another. God, we pray that in an age of suspicion, as being high, highly ranked as important, we pray that we would be those who believe all things. And Lord, who try to put the best construction on one another. We pray you give us gracious hearts, forgiving hearts, kind hearts. And Lord, we know and trust that in all of these things, you're building your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We thank you for your mighty arm. We pray you would bear it here in Holland and in Grand Rapids and all over the world on this your holy day. In Jesus' name. Amen.